Hey everyone, welcome to a bonus episode of the Running On Purpose podcast. We're doing a bonus interview with the great Dick Beardsley. You might remember in episode 23 of the Running On Purpose podcast, we did our first Legends episode. With Jeff Webb and I re recorded an interview on the 1982, well, we recorded an episode of the 1982 Boston Marathon, where the duel in the sun happened between the great Alberto Salazar and the great Dick Beardsley. And I have a friendship with Dick's, with Dick and his wife. Um, and so I had the opportunity to get on a call with him and we did an interview. And this interview was something we did just thinking maybe we would try it, see what would happen, but it was amazing. I mean, really amazing guys. I can't recommend it enough. We cover the gamut of his running career, we cover the race itself with some really surprising details. He's candid, he's open, he's engaging. He's an incredible raconteur. But you guys, you got to listen to this episode and this interview for the last 15 to 20 minutes. Dick opens up and shares about his addictions and also shares about another trauma that happened with him um, in the last four to five years. And he's... It's just inspiring, simply inspiring. And we did not expect to get the content that we got. And I'm so proud that we recorded it on Zoom. Andrew recorded it um, on audio. Dick's audio won't sound the greatest because um, we were recording straight through Zoom and we didn't have it running through our normal um, recording device and he didn't have a high quality uh, microphone. But you can hear his voice. Um, you can feel him and, uh, I just hope that you all will really appreciate this opportunity to listen to a legend who shared with us freely and openly. And if you come away as anything other than inspired, then I don't know what you're made of. If you really like this podcast, let us know. You can reach me at Sisson at Telos Running. You can give us a review wherever you get your uh, podcasts, however they're delivered to you, um, or give us stars, however it works for you. We just honestly love to hear from you. We'd love to hear if you like what we're doing. Um, Jeff and I are having a fantastic time with the legend series and, uh, enjoy this bonus episode. We hope that you will, um, hope you'll cut other episodes, other bonus episodes in the future. Um, but for now, enjoy this one and, uh, let us know what you think. All right, guys, Godspeed and enjoy this episode, this special edition. On your mark, get set. You're a hero of mine, Dick. I mean, we can just start right there. Um, I was really, I started running when I was six. So this is like 1975. Started racing when I was eight, right? So that's like 1977. And I devoured every runner's world that my father had from the first runner's worlds through the runner magazine. You know, that was the, and to my, in my opinion, still, it's the greatest rag about running that there ever was. They just got it more right than the runners. I agree. Did. And, um, so I just knew you as, um, you know, from my con in my consciousness, you were the, the sort of quintessential, uh, underdog who made right 
you know? And then going through reading through your um, through the book, I wish we had read your book as well. Jeff and I both commented on that afterwards. But reading through Brant's descriptions of things and getting a little more, you know, full detail on it, and having already met you in person and been around you in Austin at Runtex, I I just realized how really much of an upstart you really were. Like you, you know, whereas you look at a guy like Alberto, who was your main competitor at that point. I mean, this kid was already the, 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 you know, everyone was talking about it when he was 16 years old, right? He was a stud. Yes. From the beginning and you, you know, you, you weren't. So give us a little bit of a background on how kind of how running started with you, like where you sort of got started running. And then maybe a little bit about when you shifted from being a runner to being like a really competitive athlete and how that played out. Yeah. So as a kid growing up here in Minnesota, you know, I was so into the outdoors, hunting and fishing and trapping. And I milked cows for the neighbors. And, and I had started my own fishing guide business when I was 12 years old. And, and athletics never really were a part of my background. I mean, I loved, I loved athletics. I loved going to football games, baseball games, watching them on television and things like that. But, um, and I played, you know, I, in Minnesota, you know, every kid tries to play hockey, and I wasn't very good at hockey. And in fact, um, when I when I started running as a junior, uh, I was 17 years old. So I was just getting ready. Uh, then for my senior season, my my uh, hockey coach comes up to me and he says, "Beards," he goes, "You know, when you're a senior, you can't play on the JV team anymore." <laughs> he, goes, <laughs> he goes, "You know, I see you running every day during study hall." He goes, maybe you ought to put more effort into that. And I have not had on a pair of skates since. Probably some <laughs> of the best advice I'd ever given. But so as a kid, I just was, you know, big into the outdoors, hunting, fishing, trapping, you name it. And then um, when I was starting my junior year of high school, so that was 1973, I was, I, uh, for some reason, all of a sudden, my hormones kind of changed a little bit and girls started looking a lot better to me than like a dead raccoon laying alongside the road and but I was the most shy bashful kid and the thought of saying hi to a girl let alone actually speaking to one or heaven forbid actually asking one out on a date almost made me sick to my stomach but I noticed a lot of my buddies in my high school that would wear their high school letter jackets around because they were good in various sports they always had girls hanging all over them and so I thought well golly all I got to do is earn myself a letter jacket and the chicks will come to me. So, uh, so I went out for the football team <laughs> and, you know, I'm six foot tall, 135 pounds, soaking wet. And I remember the first day of practice, I got game tackled. And I remember getting up out of that pile of guys and my helmet was on crooked and my shoulder pads were sticking out and my football pants were down to my ankles. And I'm thinking, there's not a girl alive that is worth going through this. <laughs> and, and I quit. I mean, I didn't even last an hour on the football team, but, you know, and at the time I was just really disappointed and what little self-esteem I had at that point in my life pretty much went down the drain. But, you know, as I've said this to many people, sometimes what we, what we think is some of our greatest disappointments in our lives actually turns out to be incredible blessings. And that's what it was for me. And a friend of mine told me about this thing called cross country, and I'd never even heard what didn't know what cross country was, but I thought, uh, gosh, how hard can that be? And so I I showed up the following Monday for my first day of practice. And 
I'll never forget this. The coach says, all right, boys, line up out there on the road in front of the school. We're going to do the around-the-block run. And I'm thinking, okay, I've never run before, but I know I'm determined enough and I'm, and I'm stubborn enough that I can hang with my teammates to go around the block. So our coach, he blows his whistle, and we get down to the end of the first street corner. We turn left. I'm right with everybody. Same on the next street corner. Turn left again, and I'm thinking, okay, get to the next street corner. We turn left, back to the high school. Practice is over. Well, we kept going straight, and I'm thinking, well, they must be feeling pretty good today. They're going to run two blocks. Well, it wasn't long after that. We were out of blocks in town, and they were so far in front of me that I could no longer see them. And thankfully, one of my teammates came back to where I was struggling to put one foot in front of the other. And he goes, Beards, just follow the road you're on all the way till it ends. When you get to the end, turn left. When you get to the next road, turn left there, and that'll take you back to the high school. And then he took off again. Well, I came to find out that what they called their around the block run was actually 3.2 miles long. Now, that didn't seem very far to me today, but Back then, I mean, it seemed like forever. And I had to walk the last mile. I, uh, by the time I got back to my high school parking lot, all my teammates and my coach had already short and gone home. But I'll tell you what, Steve, when I crossed into my high school parking lot, I remember being so excited. I remember thinking, gosh, Dick, I don't know how far you just ran and walked, but you made it. And I'll just bet you, Dick, if you work real, real hard and do what your coach told you to do and, and don't give up and believe in yourself and have faith, I'll just bet you, Dick, you can get good enough to make the varsity squad, to earn the letter jacket, to get the date with the girl. That was my whole inspiration for running was to get the date with the girl. And, and I did everything my coach told me to do and showed up on time for practices and never complained about a workout and even ran on the weekends when I didn't have to. But I. Uh, I wasn't very good, and I, I, I didn't make the varsity team. I was on the JV team, and, of course, I didn't earn a letter jacket because of that. But when the season ended, I didn't run another step. And in the season in Minnesota, ends pretty early because wintertime comes early. So by the end of October, I was pretty much done. I didn't run another step. And then that next spring, so the spring of 1974, my, uh, my coach said, so Beards. You're, you're coming out for the track team, aren't you? I go, the track team? You mean that, that little circular dirt road that you run around by the football field there? <laughs> he goes, yeah. I go, no. I said, man, that's opening efficient season. So I didn't go out for track team, which didn't make him very happy that junior year. But I'd already set a goal for myself when cross-country season ended that once school got out for the summer, my goal was to run every single day that summer. And I did. I didn't miss a day. I didn't run real far or very fast. And I came back to my, for my senior year of high school, so my second year of cross country. And it was exactly one year to the day we did that same around-the-block run. But this time, instead of all my teammates finishing in front of me, they all finished behind me. Now, that wasn't saying a whole lot because we, we didn't have a very good team. But it showed me that, man, don't let anybody, especially yourself, keep you from pursuing those hopes and dreams and going after those goals. Now, saying all that, I was much better my senior year, but still not good enough to uh, – I didn't qualify for the state meets in cross country. And, and then I, I did go out for track my senior year. 
but I, uh, I think I got, uh, I think I ran 9.58 in the two mile, and uh, which I was tickled to break 10 minutes, mm. and like 4.38 in the mile or something like that. But again, I didn't qualify for the state meet. I then went on to uh, a small college, part of the University of Minnesota at Waseca, a small two-year uh, agricultural college, uh, which is now a federal prison, by the way. <laughs> so that's a whole other story. But I had a, my coach there was a special guy, Coach John Folkrod. He was a chemistry teacher also. And, and I remember one day after practice, he put his arm around me and he goes, you know, Dick, I really believe you can become as good of a runner as you want to be. And I never, ever forgot that. And when I got into college and I could start running, you know, 10,000 meter distances, it seemed like the further I ran, the better that I, I seemed to do. And so when I was 21, I, uh, that was 1977, I ran my very first marathon, the Pavo Nermi Marathon in a little town of Hurley, Wisconsin, in northeastern part of the state. It's been around for over 50 years now. And I think I ran two hours and 47 minutes. And I remember thinking, I am never doing, <laughs> never doing this again. And uh, did you feel like that was a good result or did you feel like that was a poor result based on what you were expecting? Well, I didn't really know. I, I remember I was excited to run it. I, I, I think my longest run going in was maybe a 10 or 12 miler. And I, I remember uh, running with this guy that was older, quite, you know, he was probably in his thirties or something. I was 21 and I'm just yapping my, <laughs> the first six miles, I'm just yapping to him the whole time. And finally, he turned to me, he goes, Dick, he says, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but he says, talking and running a marathon, it takes a lot of energy out of you. So he goes, you can talk all you want, but I'm not answering you anymore. <laughs> so, but I got done with that. And it was, I mean, I was, I was hurting bad, but I thought, man, I just ran 26.2 miles, but I thought, I'm not, I'm not doing this again. Well, a few months later, I decided to try another one and I ran the City of Lakes Marathon, which is kind of a, was a prelude to the Twin Cities Marathon. And I ran like 237, so I improved by about 10 minutes. But again, I thought, I, man, I'm not, I'm not doing this again, that's just too much. Well, then I realized that, you know, if you're gonna run a marathon, they're hard enough as it is, even when you're doing really good training. And I thought, you know, I, I gotta train for these things. and and my, my running just kind of, it just kind of took off. And I, I loved racing and, and whatnot. And then in 1979, I, uh, I was 23 and uh, I'd just gotten married to my first wife, Mary. And um, I was doing my fishing guide business. I was milking cows, farming. And, and um, one day I, I uh, went out to the mailbox before I to, to do before chores to get the mail. And I brought it back in and I flipped the, the mail on the table and I one of my running magazines had come. Now I had not run for three or four months. I th I figured my running was done with. You know I'm gonna I'm married now. I'm gonna have kids and farming, doing my fishing business, and um, and I anyhow I flip open the magazine and there was an article in there on on the, the 1980 Olympic trials and what it took to qualify. Now, by that point, I'd gotten down to about 233 in the marathon, 
Now in 1980, I had to run 221.56. And I remember standing around in my old dirty coveralls and I'm thinking, you know, I can do this when I'm in my 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s, but you know, I can never see how good of a runner I can become when I get that old. And then I flash back to what Coach Folkrod told me about Dick, I really believe you can become as good of a runner as you want to be. And and I thought, man, I got to at least try. So I moved into the Twin Cities, well, outside of the Twin Cities, just a little small town, got a one-bedroom apartment, 400 bucks a month. And, um, and it was a struggle, but I was training twice a day, sometimes three times a day. And uh, were you working on your own? Were you writing your own schedule or did you, had you found somebody who you were getting advice from? That's a great question, Steve. So um, it was kind of a, at that point, it was kind of a combination. So I learned some, you know, I took some things I learned from my coach in high school. And then I took some things that I learned from my coach at Waseca. And then I went out to South Dakota state for a, for one, one season and from him. And then there was a, a a great runner from Minnesota named Ron Dawes. Ron oh, yeah. made the 1968 Olympic team. And, and, uh, and I knew Ron a little bit and he'd made, he had wrote a book called self-made Olympian. And inside book. his book, it was filled with a lot of his workouts and stuff. And man, I, that thing was like the Bible to me almost. And so I took a combination of my coaches and then a combination of, of Ron stuff that he had in his book and put it together. And, um, it kind of it got me to a, a more competitive level, you know, I, not on a national class, but in Minnesota, I could, you know, I was pretty competitive and um, it just kind of kept going from there. Yeah. That's really, that's really cool. So Dick, as you describe this, I'm, I'm a Philadelphia guy and I'm thinking of uh, Vince Papali from Invincible, you know, a guy who essentially walked on to the NFL and when right. you're standing in your kitchen in your dirty coveralls as a 233 marathoner thinking, you know, I want to qualify for the Olympic trials, not to mention what you did beyond that. Like, it's a little crazy because 233 at that time today, that's those are great times. Oh, yeah. But it was less of a great time then than it is now. And I'm wondering if people told you you were crazy. Like, you, you know, Dick, um, I, I said you could be a good runner, but I wouldn't recommend – derailing your life and career for this yeah, telling you you were nuts my my biggest critic at the time was my dad you know my dad grew up on a farm he had an eighth grade education and um he when i told him what i was going to do he i mean he about went through the roof he just couldn't understand how i was throwing my life away now when i say that my dad's been gone now since 1996 he died of pancreatic cancer but but my dad would go on to become my biggest biggest supporter ever and so in uh the june of 79 yeah i ran the i didn't run the grandma's marathon in duluth that year because i got married that weekend but the following weekend i ran the first manitoba international marathon in winnipeg which isn't too far from where i live and um, so the qualifying time was two hours, 21 minutes, and 56 seconds. And I ran two hours, 21 minutes, and 54 seconds. Man, <laughs> you would have thought I'd won the Olympic gold medal. I was so gosh dang excited. And um, honest to gosh, I thought, man, I qualified for the Olympic trials. 
And my goal was this, it was, you know, run the trials. You can tell your kids and grandkids that, hey, old, your old man, your old grandpa ran in the Olympic trials. And, and then that was gonna be it. Well, that winter then of, of 1980, I got really, really sick. In fact, they, they thought I had leukemia. I had, my, my hemoglobin was virtually gone. I, 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 I was, you know, I'd walk up a, two flights of stairs to my apartment and could hardly get to the top. And I'd run these races around Minnesota and, and literally finish in last. And I thought I thought I kind of lost it, I guess, my, my motivation or something. And finally, my mom convinced me to go to the doctor and, Long story short, I had really bad anemia. So they got me on some iron supplementation. Now through all this, I still was out running 120 miles a week. And so it was almost like altitude training. It definitely, it, it definitely is. I've worked with many athletes and I tell them whenever they all get depressed when they get anemic and I'm like, no, no, don't worry about it. It's like being at 8,000 feet of altitude. Yeah. Just keep working. Don't overtrain. Don't, don't, don't kill yourself, but just slow it down a little bit. Do the volume, and guess what? You're gonna be you're gonna be just fine. <laughs> and 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 Steve, that's exactly what I did. And so I thought, well, I, and I started feeling better within a couple of weeks. And May was coming up pretty quickly. And I thought, well, you know, go run the Olympic trials, and and then that was done. That was it. So you know, I'd been sick, but I was feeling better. So I went into the Olympic trials with no expectations at all. And now at this point, I'd never broken 220. I'd gotten down to to 2020, but I'd never got under that magical number of sub 220. So I went in there with really no aspirations of trying to do anything great. Just go out there, run, so you can tell your kids and grandkids you ran there. So race started and it was in Buffalo, New York, where although most of it was over on the Canadian side. And gosh, within about three, four miles, I started feeling really good. Now, back then, there was probably close to a couple hundred guys in the Olympic trials back then. And um, I just started picking off one runner after another. So long story short, I ended up finishing 16th overall, and I ran 216.01. So I'd broken 220, and I was not halfway through the shoot. And I remember thinking to myself, I am not quitting now. <laughs> and, um, and, and then it just kept getting you know, things just really started blossoming. And I was, you know, I got hooked up with the New Balance Shoe Company in November of 1979. And then in 19, the summer of 1980, Coach Bill Squires started coaching me. How did and, that come uh, about? So get this. So in 1979, I sneak into a, 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 a sports convention in Minneapolis that was just open for buyers and stuff. I got kicked out three times, but I finally got in there and I typed up these about a dozen one page resumes about my running. I had to double and triple space because, you know, just to fill a whole page. And I thought, I'm gonna go and try to get a shoe sponsorship. Now, I didn't have a nickel in my pocket. I mean, the shoes I was wearing, I am not making this up. They were duct taped together because they were falling apart. I didn't have any money to buy any. I knew if I went to my dad and asked him to borrow some money, I knew what the answer was <laughs> gonna be before I even asked. So anyhow, I get into this sporting goods convention and, and I went up to every shoe company and, and uh, they all, I handed them a resume and said, thank you very much, hope to hear from you. And as I left, I remember hearing this crinkling of paper, and, you know, 
going right into the trash can. And I, I, I had one resume left and, and uh, there were two shoe companies, New Balance and then Spalding made a running shoe back then. And I thought, okay, I got one left. What's it going to be? And I pointed to the New Balance booth and anyhow, the guy, his name was Hal DeWaltop. He actually looked at my resume and he goes, you know, Dick, he says, I'll be honest with you. At the time, you've run at various distances, aren't very fast. But he says, you're getting better. But he says, you know what I really like about a young person like yourself are the goals that you've set for yourself. And then I'll never forget this. His next question to me was, so Dick, what size shoe do you wear? And my immediate response was, what size you got? <laughs> <laughs> I was I was ready to cut my toes off if I had to to make them fit. And uh, anyhow, I walked out of there with a pair of New Balance six twenties. Now this is 1979. They sold for like 65 bucks a pop. Now back then, they at the mm. time they were the most expensive running shoe on the market. And so I, I I get home and and he goes before I left. He goes, Dick, I'll I'll. I'll put a little package of stuff together for you when I get back to Boston where our headquarters are and I'll see if I can get you hooked up with our running coach. Well, 10 days later, I got this box, giant box came, you know, UPS and there were like 10 pair of New Balance running shoes and singlets and socks and shorts. And I remember opening that in my little apartment and I, I, I was crying like a little baby. And it wasn't because I got a bunch of free gear. But the reason I got so emotional was I thought, man, somebody besides me, Dick Beardsley, believes in what I'm trying to do. And honest to gosh, Steve, that next morning when I got up and I put on a new pair of shoes and a new pair of shorts and a new singlet and I went out for a run, I had a quickness in my step that I never, ever had before. That in itself took me to another level. And then that summer, the following, so that was the fall of 1979. The, ne the next summer of 1980, the new guys from New Balance called me up because the only guy from New Balance I'd ever met was this Hal DeWaltop that was at this uh, convention. He goes, Dickie, he goes, we'd like to bring you out here and have everybody meet you. And he says, oh, by the way, the Felmouth Road Race is going to be going on. And he says, you know, we can get you into that race if you want. So I flew out there. And I flew out with a guy that was on the same flight. You've probably heard of him, a guy named Mike Slack. Oh, now, yeah. Mike Slack trained with Gary Bjorklund, Minnesota boy. And Mike was a sub-four-minute miler and stuff. Well, he ran for Nike at the time. And New Balance was flying him out there to woo him a little bit to see if he could sign with New Balance. So I get off the plane with Mike, and I've got my bags, and he's got his. And at the gate, is Coach Squires, and I'd never met him before, but I'd heard about him. Well, Mike Slack and Coach Squires knew each other, so next thing I know, next thing I know, they're walking side by side. I've got four bangs over my shoulder, <laughs> like a little puppy dog following them behind, and and, uh, and so I ran Falmouth, and I, I ran terrible. I thought, I mean, I ran like a little under five minute pace, but that was you know in that race, that's way back, and I thought, man. New Balance isn't even going to even fly me back home now. And, and I remember they came up to me after the race to go, Dick, we did not bring you out here and see, base everything on how well you do at Felma. It just happened to be the weekend that worked for us and the race was here. So Coach Squires took me back 
to the airport. And he goes, Dickie, he's, he all, they all call me Dickie out east there for some reason, but he goes, Dickie, he goes, listen, he goes, I don't know if you have a coach, but he says, I'd be more than happy to work with you. And I'm thinking, holy cow, Coach Squire wants to work with me. And so that started an incredible, incredible relationship. And I started working with him, so probably like the 1st of September. And he took me to a level that I never, ever thought I'd even come close to. Do you think it was because of the kind of work he did that was different from what you were doing? Or do you think it was that mixture of... um him believing in you and you having the ability to lean on someone and not have to think about, you know, that benefit of the coach athlete relationship sort of removes the responsibility from the athlete. And if you've got a coach as, as at that, I mean, even today, coach Squires is a hero of mine, but that time he was definitely one of the greats. Everybody was paying attention to him. His athletes were running really, really well. So right. What's that mix of like, what is a, is it, is it cause he coach Squires does some kind of unusual work. It's not, yeah. it's not typical distance runner work. No. And I, I tell you, we hit it off right away. And I think part of it, a big part of it was, was just having coach there as a sounding board. And you know, I'm in I'm in Minnesota, he's out in Boston. There was no computers and stuff back then. He'd send me my weekly workouts on the back of a beer stained uh, <laughs> beer stained napkin from the Elliott Lounge where all the runners hung out in Boston. And then he'd call me once a week. And I remember one time saying, Coach, you cannot call me after nine o'clock at night because when I get off the phone with you, I am so fired up. <laughs> I, I I can't sleep. I want to go out and do a 20 miler. So that was a big part of it. And then I loved his, his type of training and workouts suited me perfect. He was into high mileage, which I was. I, and, and the one run I looked forward to more than any every, every week was my, my long run. Every week I did a you know, 22 to 24 miler. And, and that long run, it wasn't just going out and throwing on the miles. I mean, basically everything I'd done the six previous days was incorporated into that long run. So it made it go by so quick. And I think, I'll tell you what, and Coach was big on surges and, and not just one or two, but I mean, he, I'd go on a 20 some mile run and I'm doing these surges from minute to 10 minute surges. And I'm telling you, when it got to a race, you know, a lot of guys can cover a couple, but you start throwing a third one or a fourth or a fifth, and pretty soon, and it gets hard to handle. And and coach was big into that kind of stuff. So I think it was his combination of, of enthusiasm, of a sounding board, and his knowledge, just really, uh, and the friendship we had developed. Just, I get so choked up talking about. It. I mean, he. Uh, you know, he would give me or anybody, for that matter, the shirt off of his back, and uh, he'd do whatever it could to to get you to where he where he thought you should be, and he did that with me. Believe me, you're a coach now. Do you use some of his stuff, or how do you how do you work with your athletes? What 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 sort of philosophy do you come from? Well, I'm definitely Coach Squire's background, and and Steve. Now, when you say a coach. I'm nothing like you. I mean, I, 
I coach, I don't coach any more than five people. It's all online. I've never had any really, you know, like really top athletes working with. I do have a gal I've been working with for about 15 years that, you know, she, but she's, uh, she'll be 70 next, next year, but she's a, she's a world-class for her age group and stuff. But my philosophy was always what coach Squires remember telling me early in working with him. He says, he goes, Dickie, he says, being a coach isn't rocket science. He goes, if you put the minor, the might, the right amount of distance with the right amount of speed and the right amount of recovery, you're going to have success. So and true. it is so true, Steve. It is so true. You know, I see some of these books, there's these formulas that I'm like, I'm confused after page two, you know? And um, not to say that it can't be more detailed because it, it, it sure can be. But so that's kind of the philosophy I go on. And, you know, I work with each athlete, as I'm sure you do too. It's not just, okay, make one workout. Okay, everybody, here's your workout for the week. Because everybody's different. Yeah, well, I, I do a little bit of that because that's the only way that you can work with a number of people, right? Otherwise, you're there's a difference. But you're between, working with a lot. Yeah, and I'm thinking through all of the different permutations that might play out, try to give a variety of different pacing scenarios and recovery scenarios. And actually, one of the things I love to do is to ask my athletes, like Coach Dawes did, coach yourself, right? I, I'm going to provide you with a basic format for what you do. Yes. But you need to be able to manipulate and manage that yourself or else, because I'm not running the race with you, right? You're right. running the race, so you're better off learning much of that stuff. But it's a... Uh, so I want to talk just a little bit about Jeff and I are both really intrigued with London 81. Yeah. Um, how did they talk you into coming out there? Um, Cause this is, you know, now London is the, the race of the, of, in the world. It's probably right. other than that in Berlin are the two, you know, most prestigious marathons in the world. And you were, not only did you run in the first one, but you, I'm going to put air quotes around the word one, the first one, right? So tell us how you got out there, how that race played out and what the heck happened to make you decide to have the, to, to finish the race the way you finished the race. Sure. So, um, so here's how London happened. So I I just gotten back from running the Beppu International Marathon in Japan in like it was mid uh, mid to late January, and about two weeks later, uh, New Balance called me up and they go, Dickie, they go, listen, uh, our European distributor for New Balance, it's a guy named Chris Brasher, him and oh, yeah. <laughs> a, a, him and another guy are putting on this new marathon in London and he's looking for an athlete from the U S to come over. He says, how would you like to go over and run it? You know, I, I'd never been to honk in London before. I said, heck yeah, I'll go over there. And I remember going over there and you know how nasty our tabloid papers in our country can be. Well, there are 10 times worse over there. And I get over there about a week before the race. And, um, I'll never forget this. They put me up, in this little small hotel, the the bed was so short I had to sleep in the fetal position because it was it wasn't long enough to stretch my legs out. They gave me enough money to buy a couple of hamburgers a day, you know, and I was just tickled pink. But these the every day in the paper, they were just ripping Chris Brasher and the organizers saying, 
nobody's going to turn out for this race and, and nobody's going to come and watch it. Well, let me tell you, on race day, there was somewhere between six and 7,000 runners, which now that was a big race back then. It was a cold, drizzly, rainy day. There was over a million spectators lining the streets, and it was, it was amazing. It was so well run. And so there was the, a huge pack of mainly European runners, and I, I might have been the only American over there that I, at least up in that, that had a chance to be up in that group. And so I just ran out, went out with the pack, and at about halfway, we're coming across the London Bridge. And I thought, I'm going to make a little bit of a move. So I put in a hard surge, and the only runner that came with was a guy named Inga Simonson from Norway. No, at the time, I didn't know that's who, I didn't, didn't know who he was, and all I knew that another runner came with me. Now, back then, when you came off the, the London Bridge, you took a right-hand turn, kind of like you do now. But back then, in 1981, it was nothing but uh, shut down buildings, no homes. There was no spectators <laughs> back in there. And now it's like one of the premier areas of, uh, of London to be. It's all redeveloped. And so anyhow, as we, we went way down one way, and then we turned and started coming back towards Buckingham Palace. And then this Inga was still with me. So I, I'm starting to throw in some surges and stuff. And, and I just cannot, I can't get away from them. And then with about three miles to go, we hit about a mile and a half of cobblestone. And now we're talking cobblestone that's been down for what, 800 years or something <laughs> like that. And a lot of it are sticking up and, and it'd been raining. It was real slippery. And I, I kind of, slipped on one and, and I, I pulled a, my right calf kind of pulled just a little bit nothing real bad so anyhow we finally get off of that and I'm I'm trying to break them and I I can't and so we're getting closer and closer and uh, we're probably I don't know maybe a quarter mile from the finish line and I and I turned to him and I I like I said I didn't know where he was from I didn't know if he spoke English or anything I said I go, what do you think? And he goes, I go, do you want to run it together? And he goes, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. But then all of a sudden he throws in a surge. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, I guess he doesn't want to run it together. So then I caught up and then I threw in a surge. And so now we're basically side by side running for the finish line. And I thought, well, it's an all-out sprint. And then right before the finish, Inga just kind of reached down and grabbed my arm. And we came across, you know, with our arms up like this. We gave each other a hug. And we weren't out of the chute. And Fred Lebeau, remember Fred from the New York City Marathon, who started that race. Well, they brought Fred over to kind of help him, you know, help organize this race. And Fred runs up to me, goes, Beardsley, he goes, that would never happen in the New York City Marathon. He was ticked at me. And I go, Fred, it'll never happen to me again either, but it just seemed right for today. <laughs> and, and you know what? The neat thing, Steve, is that, so I've got a lot of ancestry. My grandma on my mom's side came from Norway. Inga, Norwegian, we become incredibly good friends. And every year, not every year, about every fifth year, every big anniversary for the London Marathon, they always bring 
Inga and his family, me and my family back. They put us up. They treat us like we are the honking king of the world over there just because we won the first marathon, going to marathon. And the neat thing about it was the next day after that race in papers all over the globe was this picture of him and I coming across with our arms up. And it, I don't think it was so much that because we won the first London marathon, but here were two athletes from two different countries showing such sportsmanship. Mm. And I tell you that, that race <laughs> um, has, I mean, when I, when I go over to London, it's crazy how people recognize you over there. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts. So um, I'm looking forward to going back again, uh, hopefully this fall, because they rescheduled it. You know, it's, it'll be the 40th running of that London marathon. And who knows, I might even run it. We'll see. So Dick, you, you win that, that race now, one of the most prestigious in the world, major international competition, even there in, in year one. I have the perception that you're better known, though, for your second place at Boston. Do you think that's fair? And also, which, which one do you value more? Which, which performance to you do you value more between the two? Yeah, it definitely, I mean, London means the world to me. It really does. But, I mean, when you're looking at the prestige and how long the Boston Marathon's been around, and even though, <laughs> you know, I've told this to many people, I don't think there's been a runner in any race that's finished second that's got more bang for his buck than I have. <laughs> I, I mean, honest to gosh. And it's amazing how I'll have, have young people. I mean, I'm 64 now. I have people come up to me that weren't even a twinkle in their mom's eyes and dad's eyes back then, weren't even born, yet they'll come up to me and talk about that race because, you know, you can go to YouTube and I, and watch some of the parts of that race. And I, I think why that race still resonates with so many people is because it was two young Americans that, you know, one didn't come from behind at the end and, or anything like that. I mean, two guys, young Americans, that basically from the get-go to the end were hooked at the hips together and fought it out on a warm day and, um, Neither one of them ever ran that fast again. And I think everything that just ties into that and then the things that went on afterwards just makes that a race that I think people don't, for, you know, don't want to forget. You know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast a few hours ago, but I can remember that race 38 years ago now like I ran it this morning. It's that vivid still in my mind. So one question Jeff and I had throughout this is, we, we've got a lot of, you've been really open about how you chose to run that race, what you were thinking about and how, how you were throwing surges in there. And, and, you know, you, we've got a good amount of what went on there, but we don't know what Alberto was doing. Right. And Alberto is really, has always been pretty reticent to share. You know, I have a gut feeling that you were throwing surges and out surges in and Alberta was hanging on for dear life, but he would never want to tell the world that because that's just the kind of athlete that he was, especially at that time, he wouldn't have wanted to share it, but it's very strange now, even 40 years later, he still wouldn't want to tell us, right? Cause no. that's just the way he is. He never shows his cards. Did you know, did you ever feel like he was on the ropes as you were throwing in those surges or what was going on with you and 
and knowing he was following you, um, how do you think that played out? Like, I'm, I'm very curious because, I mean, once those other guys, once Mendoza and the other guys, and, and finally Bill drops off, yeah. it's def- as you said, it's definitely the two of you. And you are, it, it looks like you're up front and Alberto's behind, but I know enough about racing to know that you are throwing, and you ran, what we say, Jeff, 1910 or something like that for that? That four miles. Yeah, that I think you we ran? read nineteen twelve through a four mile section. And Dick, I think just that the so you know, was I, like the fastest ever, you know, through <laughs> those hills. But I, but now you got to remember, we didn't have mile splits and stuff. Those little towns you ran through, those were the checkpoints. Yeah. And so I remember Coach Squires telling me going into the race. He goes, Dicky, he goes, if you're in that lead group. When you turn right at the fire station and hit those four miles of hills, he goes, I want you to run up those hills as hard as you can. And on the downside of them, I want you to run even harder. So like a good soldier listening to his commander, man, I hit that first hill. And that's where, where Mendoza dropped off when we made that turn there. And I, and I hit the first hill and uh, I'm, I'm pounding, trying to pound Salazar, boom, boom, boom. And then we're at the base of heartbreak. And I remember running heartbreak literally as hard as I can. And I remember three quarters of the way up, I see a wheelchair athlete. Now, you got to remember, the wheelchairs they raced in back then were basically <laughs> like the wheelchairs you get out of the local hospital. And this, this guy is pushing up this hill. And I'm thinking, he misses one pull, and he's going all the way back down. And it absolutely inspired me. So I actually ran, look at the video sometime of us coming up heartbreak. It's hard to see, but I actually veered to the left, went over and patted him on the back. And I said, way to go, buddy. And Alberto followed me over there too, but he didn't pat him on his back. You know? <laughs> so we get to the top of heartbreak hill. And I, you know, I just glanced behind me and Alberto's right there. So on the downside, I mean, honestly, I feel like I'm doing the 100 meter sprint. I am doing everything I can to break away from him. And I get down to the bottom where it kind of flattened out. And I remember I didn't even have to look behind me to see if he was still there because I could hear him breathing. And at that point, I could no longer feel my legs. And, and I was hurting, but I knew this. I knew from just reading about Alberto and his style that the last way he liked to race was to be sitting on somebody's shoulder. He wanted to be in control. So even though I was hurting, I thought, you know, Alberto has got to be hurting too, because otherwise he would not just be hanging on my shoulder for the last six miles or so. And so then I just kind of broke the race down to a, to a, to a one mile segment because the thought of running five more miles or so was, I thought, I don't think I can do that at this pace or faster. And so I, I remember blocking out that I had five or so miles to go. And all I focused on was the next mile. And that now all of a sudden in my mind, the task at hand didn't seem quite so daunting because now I didn't have to run five more miles, just one more mile. And so next thing I know, the, you know, boom, boom, boom. And, and then, you know, we get down to where. So during that time there, was he, was he, 
still, could you feel him just sucking off of you? Like he was going to wait. Is that what you, at that point, were you pretty sure he was going to wait to see either your the chink, a chink in your armor or wait to the very finish, right? Cause he knew he had wheels, right? And he yes. didn't know very much about you. Yeah, he definitely had wheels. I mean, he had wheels for a 10K, 5K guy. I mean, he ran third, I mean, he ran really fast, right? But right. he wasn't- well, uh, I ran for me, I'll tell you that. Yeah, well, he, but he, but you, you might've, I don't know. I mean, I think if you guys ran an all out 200, you might've been actually faster than him because he's not who a, who knows? But that that's an interesting thing to me, but you definitely knew that he had been working those skills, right? And oh, while yeah. anything that you had worked, you were working in a Squires block where all your surges were happening in extended runs. And a lot of that stuff is not about, get up and go and use those fast twitch muscles right then. So you, right. you knew that, but did you feel like he was just sucking off of you or did you feel like he was um, playing it right? Or, you know, I'm, I'm just curious as I know you can't tell us what Alberto was thinking, right. but since he won't tell us, you're the closest man to him <laughs> during those time, those miles. Yeah. So you have a better insight than anyone else does. Well, here's how I felt. So with about four or five miles to go, okay, I'm, I'm hitting him with a surge. I mean, a lot. But here's the thing, you know how usually you surge and then you kind of back it off a little bit. So I'd throw in a hard surge. Of course, Alberto would, would come with me. And then I thought, okay, I got to back her off a little bit. He wouldn't let me. Because if I, if I tried to back it off, I could see him starting to like, okay, he's going to try to go wrong. And I did not want to let him do that. So every time I'd surge, each mile started getting a little bit faster because I, I couldn't back it off because Alberto wouldn't let me back it off. And, and then, but, you know, when I got with about 900 meters to go, something like that, I, I, I felt like I had a little bit of space on him. And, and I thought, okay, you know, and my, I remember thinking this, Alberto doesn't have a great finishing kick but he's got a lot better one than I do. And so, <laughs> that was honestly, that's what I was thinking. And I thought, okay, dig deeper than you've ever dug before. And I've been saying that for myself for the last three, four miles, but you got to dig a little deeper. And I remember putting in one last hard surge, pushed off with my right leg. And I took about two strides and I got the biggest Charlie horse in my gosh dang right hamstring. And I mean, I remember grabbing it. And Alberto, you know, golly, he just went cruising by me. And at this point, I'm thinking, I've got a little over maybe a half mile to go. And, I, and, and I'm thinking, I got a chance to win this thing. And now I'm thinking, am I even going to finish? I mean, I'm thinking I'm having the worst nightmare I've ever had. And luckily, um, the crowds back then were so on top of us. There was no fencing to keep them back. and. And the, I mean, the noise, I, I, my ears hurt more than my legs at that point from the, mm -hmm. from the sound. And I'm, I'm working my hamstring, running along the right-hand side of the road the best I can. And the crowd moved back and I stepped into a pothole I didn't see. And I almost fell down, but it, it popped the knot out of my leg. And then I got my stride back. And, and then that's what, that's where I was able to make that, that, that last, uh, catch up quite a bit of yardage on him that last, uh, you know, two, 300 yards of the race. And um, there was, you know, I watched that video, especially that once we turn on to Hereford Street there, 
and Jack LaBelle, the announcer, takes over. I've watched that literally thousands of times because in a lot of my motivational talks, I use a little two-minute segment to, to kind of lead in. Even if I'm not even talking about running, it just it's a good lead-in. And um, you guys, I'm not making this up. I've seen it thousands of times. Every time I see it, it still makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up every single time. That's how much that race that day against Alberto meant to me and still means to me. Yeah, I think that that finish line experience, you know, that for sure there were many people who know the running world who looked at that experience of you and Alberto holding your hand up, you know, and you being that close to him and him grabbing your arm and putting it up is certainly not typical of a Zalazar kind of response. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, well, I just got to say something. Sorry for interrupting there, but, you know, one of the greatest things in, as a runner is to be pulled up on that podium and having that laurel wreath put on your head. I mean, when you look at how long that race has been run, how many years, and, you know, the few individual athletes that have actually got to put that laurel wreath on their head, and the fact that Alberto pulled me up on that podium with him. And when they were raising his arm in victory, he was, I get choked up talking about it. He was, he raised by and right with his that I can't even begin to tell you what that meant to me at that moment. And still does to this day. That was, I mean, when he could have had all that glory all by himself, yet he shared a little piece of it with me. I'll never, ever forget that. Well, I, I think it's more than that, Dick. I don't think he shared a little piece of that with you. I think he knows and, and knew then. And, and I think, you know, this is the funny thing about Alberto. Again, we are, he won't speak for himself. So he's giving us an opportunity to speak for him, or at least I am, right. or at least I'm doing it. Right. But that is not what we would expect from him then or now. And there was something special in that moment, Dick, the moments that you guys shared together on the road from heart, from the bottom, from the turn at the fire station to yeah. the finish line that he recognized you as a brother, as a, as a, as a warrior who had fought the best fight possible and had taken him to the very edge. And you can feel in that photo, it still feels this way to me. I've only seen it in photos. You lived through it, but I have only seen it. And what it does share is that these two men went toe to toe from start to finish, you know, blow by blow to blow, toe to toe. And they have a deep abiding respect for each other. And yes. there's, you know, as much as you talk about the sportsmanship that happened at, at, at the Los An at the, uh, at the London race, this is real sportsmanship. This is a sportsmanship that is a man who, a man in Alberta who would not normally react this way, be as open and as heartfelt does. Why? Because the moment calls for it. And sometimes the the universe god whatever you want to call it designs and decides that we are going to be more than human we are going to be special we are going to be extremely special and in that moment you had provided him and taken him to the edge and he was able to change and be different from what he normally is and we all saw it and we all remember it i i think in my view you know alberto has gone through very challenging times and he's had great times right but I still hold hit that place in my heart with him. To me, the truest Alberto is the 
Alberto at that moment. And, and, and it is resonates with me because it's what I am and what you are and what we all are as athletes. And I think that that's what makes this race special. Yes, the race was epic. Yes, it was amazing. And yes, that footage that we get to see now of all those thousands of people lining that course. And I swear to God, I thought you were going to get knocked down about five different times. <laughs> and then you trying to get out of the way of the of the of the motorcade and then getting out of the way of the of the cops on the motorcycles and all those other pieces, they all add elements to it. But it's that moment on the starting at the finish line where we see a what we're all about, what it means to be human and how this sport really makes us and makes the sport is special because of what it makes us and what we can do. And I think, Steve, I think that's why the John, the book, John Brandt wrote Duel in the Sun. That's the cover photo is that picture of Alberto and I. And, and that that is special. I mean, I think and you you put it very well with your words of it was two basically gladiators that punched and fought right to the end and you know what yes i got second place that day but i sure don't feel like i lost i mean i gave it everything i had as alberto did and and he finished you know a couple strides in front of me and 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 you know like i tell people at the end of the day i remember well first let me back up i remember when i crossed the finish line and i was dead and, you know if you look at those videos if there weren't volunteers there to grab alberto and i we would have both been on the ground but i remember glancing up and the clock was still reading 208 something half of me had never been so happy and excited about anything in my life and my other half had never been so disappointed mm. i'm thinking wait a minute i just ran a 208 marathon when i got second and i remember going back to the hotel soaking in the tub and I went back in my mind and retraced literally every step of every mile from Hopkinton into downtown Boston. And what could I have done differently? And when I got done going through every single step of every mile to start to the finish, I remember laying in the tub there with a big smile on my face thinking, I, not one darn thing. And I, I gave it my very, very best. Alberto gave it his best. I gave it my best. And at the end of the day, when it, when you know you couldn't give any more, how could you be disappointed in that? And that just after that, I I haven't been disappointed once in not <laughs> actually winning that race. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I mean, it's iconic. That's why we started our series. You know, we were we were hoping to do a podcast, Jeff and I, in Boston that may not have been about legends. We hadn't even really con fallen, fall, you know, fallen on the legends concept. But when we knew we weren't going to be in Boston, we shifted and did our homework, and then decided of all the Boston races that we could ever pick, of all the legendary events, of all races that we could, what did we want to start with? It's that race because it just it just feels so. Right. And, um, you know, you know, I think Alberto in some fields, people would consider him a legend. Um, he's certainly notorious. Um, many people wouldn't look at you and say, oh, Dick Beardsley is a legend of the sport, no. right? Because of the results since then have weren't the results after that weren't all, but yet you are a legend because of the meaning of that race and how that race worked. And it's just, so when we think about that, when you think about that race, what do you consider your legacy as a runner? And, or, and what do you think is that is, is your legacy, what you want it to be 
know, that's sort of a dual question there, but um, play with it any way you want to. Yeah, I think, you know, just um, knowing that um, my legacy as a runner is just knowing that uh, every race I ran, I, I gave it my very, very best. And, and, and at the end of the, however it ended up at the end, you know, um, knowing that I, I gave it my best and that, um, when you, like I said earlier, when you do that, you can't be disappointed in things. And, and, um, I mean, you know, when I look back now at those years now approaching 40 years ago, and I look, see those videos, I'm thinking that cannot be me. Because, you know, I still, I run every day. I love to run. I start, I, you know, I get up at 3.30 every morning and I'm out the door by four. And, and, um, and I, I cherish my hour that I'm out on the roads, you know, running because I'm all by myself and it, and nobody's pulling me from this direction or that direction. And it's just me and the good Lord and, and, you know, the stars and the, Northern Lights, and I this time of the year now I, the loons are back, and you hear the loons calling, and and I get to see the world come alive because it's you know that early in the morning, and running it, it, I am one of the most fortunate people that I failed at football, and that I was able to get into the sport of running, and the fact that it took me to where it did. You know, I sure couldn't have done it on my own. It was the help of a lot of coaches. Gosh, I get choked up sometimes. And family and friends and 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 New Balance who believed in me and race directors who invited me to their race, you know, taking a chance on me. And um, I owe a lot to a lot of people for where I was able to go and where I'm still able to get out there and enjoy it today. Mm. Jeff, do you have anything else? Cause that was just beautifully put. <laughs> do you have any other questions, Jeff? Well, just a statement. I, I want to say thank you for, for sharing your story. I, I know you get out and you talk to people and the fact that you can be asked the same questions by different people and show the enthusiasm and uh, still be willing to talk about it in the way that you do, which is, so genuine and, and so passionate is uh is special for us and i and i know you talk to groups but i haven't heard an account like the one you just gave so i want to thank you for inspiring me and for talking to us and i'll, I'll tell you that what's really inspiring to me i think more than anything was just going back to a question i asked you earlier when you're standing in your kitchen dreaming about the olympic trials when you were somewhat of a you know upper average runner you weren't an elite runner and you're dreaming about the olympic trials and in a short period of time to achieve that goal and then just keep going and going and going and i read somewhere you know you went journeyman to world class in 18 months and you just you hardly ever see that and you're one of the few people in this world in any sport who's done it and it's just incredibly inspiring well, thank you, Jeff, and it, it's been uh, it's been a it's been a good run, so to say. And um, like I said, I'm, I'm slower than molasses in January now, but you know, I go to bed at night and and I can hardly wait to get up in the morning to go for a run. And um, so I'm very very fortunate. 
The other thing I want to say, we haven't touched on your life since then. We've talked a lot about running, which I appreciate because we want to ask all these running questions. But you've been very clear about struggles you had post-running with with your accident and your addiction. And in the running group that we're part of, uh, that Steve coaches, we have a, a few recovering addicts and alcoholics that are very open with their struggles. And they inspire the hell out of me for people. Like just getting out the door every day for a runner is impressive. But for someone to overcome something so difficult and then just completely turn their life around is impressive. And people have, you know, you've done it in a different order maybe than than they have. But I wonder if th- there's anything you care, care to say to, to those people or, or maybe even others who have less of an understanding of, of how hard that really is and, and what it takes to overcome an addiction. Yeah, you know, I, um, you know, I, I'll give you, I know we've, I've been yapping a long time here, but, you know, a, a couple of years or a few months after Boston in 82, and, you know, I was 25 or something, and I finally got recovered. I'm thinking, well, that's that, the good thing there is I know for sure I'll never have to go through anything more difficult in my life. I really believe that. You know, I'm young and I'm thinking there's nothing that's going to be harder than I, what I just got done. Well, then, you know, when I retired from the competitive side of running and you know, I got in a bad farming accident and then car accidents and other accidents and had close to 20 surgeries to put my body back together. And once that got over with and I recovered, I thought, well, Sure wouldn't want to go through that again, but the good thing is I know for sure now I'm never going through anything more difficult. Mm. Well, then, you know, I got addicted to the narcotic painkillers that I was on, and and that was, I mean, there was a three or four year period there that was it was it was brutal, and and thankfully I you know I got into treatment and and um, you know I've I've had what over little over 23 years of sobriety from the narcotics. But I remember after I had about three or four years of sobriety, I remember thinking, well, I would never, ever want to go through this again. My family, what I put them through, friends. But the good thing is I will never, ever, ever, unequivocally ever have to go through anything more difficult in my life again. I would have bet my life on it. But I was wrong. And then I, um, you know, about four and a half years ago, my son Andy was uh, in the military, his army, and he was over in Iraq. And anyhow, he had to do some things over there and and uh, saw some things that weren't very pleasant. And when he got back, he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And you know, four and a half years ago, my son Andy took his life. And um, <clears throat> I was devastated. And um, there's not a day goes by that I don't think about him, miss him every single day. And, um, you know, it makes all those accidents, the Boston Marathon, even the drug addiction seem like a walk in the park compared to dealing with, you know, losing a child. <clears throat> but the one thing that um, brings me joy and gives me hope and leaves me with peace is is knowing that Andy is no longer fighting those demons, and knowing that someday 
I'll be able to wrap my arms around him again and give him a big hug. And um, that brings me a lot of happiness, you know? So, you know, we all go through our struggles and tribulations in our life and, and um, you just got to deal with them. And, and I know the last thing my son, Andy would want me to do would be to wallow in sorrow. He would want me to move forward and, um, and keep living my life and uh, to the best that I can. And so that's what I try to do every day. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> no, no apology necessary. I'm a, a military veteran. And I know that families serve every bit as much as their loved ones serve. The people who put on their uniform, their family puts it on with them. And to lose a family member like that, it's a grief that I couldn't possibly comprehend. But I also recognize that what, what took Andy is a combat death. A lot of deaths sadly happen on the battlefield. And a lot of deaths sadly happen when they come home through various reasons. And I just, I want to thank you for Andy's service and thank your family for your service and just offer my condolences. Well, thank you, Jeff. I, I appreciate that very much. And thank you for your service too. And, and Dick, I just want to thank you for being the human being that you are. You, um, I know it doesn't take hard work for you to have that cheerful and, um, <laughs> you know, just overjoyed way of looking at the world. Um, cause I've known you for a long time and I know you're always that way. I'm sure not in every moment, but it seems like every moment. And, and I just want to tell you that, that we're all gifted your place in this world. Number one, for you to have had the race race that you did that day, that allows us all to be able to be consistently and continuously in contact with you one way or another with the, the, that day and the man you were that day, the push that you gave to one of the great another one of the greats and what that that finish line meant to all of us. But even more so, Dick, it's just your presence. You are a, a you're just a, you're a great man. And I'm grateful and thankful to know you. And I'm grateful and thankful that the people that are going to listen to this um, will have an opportunity to experience Dick in his, all his glory and in, in your truest nature, which is beautiful. And, um, thank you. Thank you for what you've shared with us. Thank you for being, um, you. And, uh, if there's anything Jeff or I could ever do, you just let us know We're we're here to help in any way we can. And your legacy and your legendary status is something, um, I think Jeff and I will always be proud no matter where this podcast goes over the long run, we'll be extremely proud that you and Alberto's, um, gladiator battle will be the first one that we covered. So thank you so much. Thank you guys. Uh, and keep up the great work. And I, I, um, I look forward to listening to a lot of your, your, uh, other podcasts down the road here. Awesome. Thanks Dick. Take care and we'll, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks guys. Well, that concludes the interview. 
suffice it to say, it took an unexpected and very personal turn at the end there. All I can say is that Steve and I did the best that we could with it in the moment. I hope we made Dick comfortable and we were just appreciative of how much he, he shared with us throughout the conversation and then just sharing something so personal at the end. Um, it, it just, it was very moving and we were grateful. So we did stick around Steve and I for a few minutes and just reflected on that conversation. And here's that talk of ours. I don't know, man, that was that end, you know, I didn't know that. I did know that. And as we were prepping for this, I meant to bring that up with you. And I don't, in the end, I didn't bring it up because I didn't, didn't know why I was bringing it up. It was something that I did not want to ask about because having, knowing a lot of families who have lost people to, for military and military deaths through combat or suicide, it's just so touchy and people handle it very differently. Some people love to talk about it. It's part of their grieving process. Some others shut down and you, you trigger them if you ask them questions about it. So I think it's always safe to be cautious, especially if you don't know somebody that well. So it's not something that I would have brought up, but it's something what I said to him, I wanted to say to him, you know, I, I wanted to acknowledge his family sacrifice and thank him. And I'm glad he gave us a chance to do it. That's what I mean about him being a great man. I mean, how could we have, I don't know. It, it, and just in the interest of whatever ever happens with this, I truly believe that Alberto has the same aspects in him. That's why I don't, that's why I'm not saying I defend him. I'm just saying I believe that the man we saw lift Dick Beardsley onto the winner's dais is the same man that's in there today. And um, I'm proud of our first episode. I'm proud of of our highlighting such a great man. And he, if you didn't already know him to be, it makes me think maybe we should add some more interviews in our in our episodes. But I don't know, maybe if we can continue to get interviews like this that could be, you know, depending on how we cut it up and how we play with it. You know, I, I certainly think it could be something, um, it could be another edition, you know? That I, like the just, after, I like the after the fact interview. Yeah, I think it's like right. Like we, we've talked about. Yeah. Because they're going to be, first of all, plenty of people that just aren't going to talk to us, period. That's so true. <laughs> um, but there are some people that they'll only talk to you under very controlled terms right. in a very careful manner. But if someone is willing to hear us air our baseless speculation and air our opinions and break things down, which we only partially understand, if they'll allow us to go through all that and still find it worthwhile to talk to us, then I think you're in for an interesting conversation like the one we just had. Yeah. I hope we can have others in the future. But regardless, that was a gift. And Dick is a gift. Mm -hmm. He's just a gift. If you don't, If you didn't know that before, you know it now. And I did know that from my experience of having spent time with him in Austin. He lived there for a little while and his um, his current wife, well, his wife, she, um, I known her for a, a long time. And I know that, uh, I just I just thought we, we might get something special from what I yeah. knew about him, so. 
And one last observation, when we were talking about Alberto, he had obviously a lot of positive feelings about that day and the glory that Alberto shared with him. You referenced Alberto's ups and downs. I didn't catch a hint. I didn't feel like there was anything unspoken about Alberto when you he had all the opening to do it. So I think he holds him in very high esteem. Oh, for sure. From that day and also just as a person that uh, we didn't get into. I don't, who knows how he would have spoke yeah, it about it. It could have been something we could have. But I also think at this point in time, it's a little disrespectful to put Dick on that. I, True. Even I, who would ask nearly any question, would probably shy away from that because I feel like he would – he might – be required to say something positive about him, which could get him tart and feathered, which believe mm-hmm. me, there are, you are going to get tart and feathered. Um, number two, that he might have something critical to say that then he would feel in his own heart was um, not a kind or generous thing to offer to the world because mm-hmm. I'm not sure that Dick could help himself. Right, he's right. like me. We're cut from the same cloth. We're just going to keep talking about whatever you let us talk about. But um, again, just, you're right. There's nothing in him that looks at that man, it seems, that is anything other than the man he did battle with and the man that he respects for the fact that he took him to the edge and took him to the well. And that's what being a warrior is, Jeff. Is it not? Isn't that literal? And this, my warrior, I am talking about men and women. Like we're mm-hmm. all in the same category that way. Is it tend to paint men as men as warriors and women not, but they are. Believe me, if you listen to the 1984 episode about the women's marathon, you see four warriors there. But he, they, they have a. You deep, don't have to convince me. I know plenty of yeah. women warriors. <laughs> they are deep. The deep respect that those two men hold can only be the two who saw each other, battled each other, and gave each other everything. And if we all did that, Jeff, if we all did that in every minute of our days, we wouldn't have this kind of sectarian anger and frustration. We would recognize we have different opinions and we have different viewpoints, but that we're all have a right to them and we all hold them and we should deal with each other with respect and caring and empathy. And you can feel that coming out of Dick. And I think you can feel it coming out of Alberto in the few interviews and things that you see that there's an understanding that while he's extremely different from Dick, he he too saw a warrior went to battle with a warrior and yeah he came out on top that day but we all know they both came out on top and we all came out on top that's the beauty of that race it didn't feel right to close this out with the rock and roll song that we opened with we decided we just wanted to pay a tribute to Andy Beardsley. I know Andy was in the Army. I mentioned that I was in the Navy. I would just like to share a hymn that is often played when saying goodbye to or remembering people we've lost in the Navy. It's called the Navy Hymn, and we're going to close this out in tribute to Andy Beardsley. <laughs> 